All right, greetings, everyone. So last week was off to kind of a rocky start, but we're going to get back into the swing of things this week. This is going to be your first full lecture from me. So make sure you're taking notes and listening and so that you get the full sense of what's going on here. We're going to move through some material pretty quickly in this lecture because I want us to get caught up to week three. So we're going to try to cover everything from the past couple of weeks in kind of a summary form. So just kind of bear with me on that. If you look at your calendar, the topics so far have been about introducing you to this class, have been about the rhetorical situation, have been about the writing sequence in this class. So kind of getting you familiar with what, what we're going to be doing this semester in English 1302. And so I want to break that down actually for you a little bit to kind of under, so you understand what this class really is. What are we doing in English 1302? It's called English 1302, and it has that subtitle, Rhetoric and Composition 2. So what does all that mean? There's actually a lot of significance to it if you really think about it. And it has a lot of meaning in relation to what you're doing in this class and the role this class plays in your larger educational pursuit. Now, a lot of you I know think that taking certain classes is just complete BS. I understand. I was in your shoes, too, as an undergraduate before. Now that I have all these multiple diplomas, you know, I think every class is important. But I can remember being there myself and thinking, why do I have to take this extra chemistry class or speech class or whatever? I mean, there, there are all these different things that, that would come up, and I was wondering why I had to take them. Those kinds of experiences as a learner have had this larger impact on me throughout my entire life, really. And so I think there's a lot of benefit in the all of these classes you take, and especially rhetoric and composition part two. Now, part one was really great. And if you had me in that class, then you had probably the best time of your life. And now you're about to have another best time of your life if you're taking me again. But if this is your first time in my class, well, then, you know, get ready for a life-changing experience. Nothing truly rocks your world and transforms your very being like English. Okay, well, then maybe that's a little bit hyperbole there. But <laughs> the point here is that there is something significant to this class just beyond the fact that you have to take it. You're required to be here. So let me break it down for you. If you think of the word English, obviously, I think that is probably the most important part of this class. It, the discipline is under the discipline of English because that is the main language we use within our culture to, to communicate and interact with one another. And it's the language we use within our academic discourse. So there are all these layers to it, but just thinking about it as a language itself is really important. English is a language that human beings use. And we usually label human languages as symbolic language. Now, what that means is we're essentially referring to grammar. You see, the way our languages work as humans is we have these utterances, these sounds we make, and we assign special symbols to them. And then we arrange those symbols in certain ways to make sentences. And from a sentence, we get something that we consider to be true, something that has meaning for us. And so if you think of your, the way your language works, parts of speech like nouns and pronouns and verbs, all those are really important. And the way you arrange them are important. And they stand for certain kinds of symbolic references that we then share with one another as human beings. And when we don't share a reference point, we have conflict. We have problems. We can't communicate clearly. I mean, think about meeting someone for the first time, maybe, and they, they've never used the word cat to refer to a feline creature. They always use it to refer to a canine creature. Well, we would think they're crazy. That's a dog, we would say. 
when they would point to like a German shepherd and say, oh, look at that cute, fluffy little cat over there. We're like, what are you talking about? That's a dog, obviously. And they're like, no, 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 it's, uh, it's a cat. My, that's what my parents used to teach me. And so what we'd have to do in that point is determine whether or not this person is a sociopath and we need to escape from them or we need to stay, keep our distance. Or more than likely, they just grew up in a setting. It would be a strange setting, but a setting nonetheless where they just learn that word that way. The word itself is arbitrary. We've assigned these symbols pretty arbitrarily for the most part. I mean, some of them have certain meanings. If you think of grammatical utterances like automatopoeias, where the sound is the same as the word, like the word moo for a cow or something, yeah, I mean, that obviously makes sense. But not all words work like that. Some do, and you can kind of trace the connection between a sound and sometimes it's the other way around. The meaning and the sound kind of interact with one another. One of the first letters of any human alphabet created was the letter beta, or what we would call B. And this letter was often represented by a bull. And so for whatever reason, the word bull comes first, the buh sound there. And then we associate the letters with that sound, and it takes on that buh sound. I mean, that's just the way language works. And humans kind of construct all these little rules and functions with language associated with the way we symbolically arrange words so that we can understand one another more clearly. So the reason there's all these rules and grammar and mechanics and writing and all this kind of stuff is not because rules are good. It's not because God has given us rules from on high, sent down in a Gladlock bag all sealed up for us. No, that's not how it works. We make up rules based on, you know, how we use our language and what allows us to best communicate with one another. A, b- a big issue right now in language studies is the issue with pronouns. I mean, we're all probably familiar with some of the debates going on with pronoun usage and how do we identify and it, these are very serious matters. And part of the complication there is that pronouns are some of the most stable parts of speech in any language. It's really difficult to change pronouns. And we are in a culture now that is really thinking about that and trying to consider what our goals are going to be and how we're going to communicate with one another. That's why there's a lot of tension there, especially with that topic. And it's worth exploring and considering what do we want to do with this. But it's also there's a linguistic element to that. We've been using pronouns for so long that our pronouns in the English language date back to the very beginning of the English language before it was really even English as we know it, when it used to be an old Germanic tribal language. So language is kind of the starting point here and the way in which we decide to generate rules so that our language will be understandable with one another. Our symbolic language also gives us an advantage as a species. And This is what I think is really cool about human and symbolic language in particular. Almost every animal on earth has some kind of a language to communicate with one another. Bees vibrate their bodies. A a baboon can indicate that there's a snake nearby with a particular kind of yelp that sounds like this. No, I won't do it. But uh, the, the idea here is that the that language can work like that and we can be bo- certain animals can be born in, with certain kinds of languages that they're just instinctually endowed with humans don't work like that our brains instead of having a particular kind of language set already established our brains produce the language as we interact with one another 
It's a very analytical, logical kind of process, and it's very natural to us. The linguist Noam Chomsky has once referred to human beings as grammar-producing machines, or in fact, he refers to the human brain as a grammar-producing machine. What he means by that is when you're born, you automatically have the capacity to use and create grammar. Think about when you're a kid and you add like a dental sound at the end of a word. And why did you do that? To indicate past tense. Now, your parents didn't sit you down ever and say, let's talk about how you generate past tense by adding dental sounds to the end of words. And let's talk about irregular verbs that don't work that way. In fact, one of my kids once, I can remember they were outside playing catch, and they were really young, maybe three, four. And they said, you catch the ball. And I was like, God Damn it, kid, get inside. How embarrassing of you. It's caught, not catched. Well, no, needless to say, I disowned that child immediately. And they are on their own. I uh, kicked them out of the house, too, at that young age. You know, you got to build grit with the kids these days or they'll never learn. No, I'm kidding. I don't disown my children for grammar problems. In fact, that's one of those things where a language kind of formed in a certain way, the English language, very early English, and the word catch and caught come from the English background where we didn't used to add the dental sounds at the end of a word to indicate past tense, or we kind of did, but not fully. We usually transform the entire word. Now, a lot of languages work like that. They're what we call synthetic languages, where they synthesize words based on word endings and different kinds of roots and stems and uh, the different kinds of morphologies that are attached to it. English kind of works a little bit differently. English is more of an analytical language where we put things in a particular kind of order to give them meaning. But whatever, whatever it is, human language puts words into these categories and then we use them in certain ways so that others will understand us. And that's why you have to correct certain things like the past tense of the word catch is caught, and that is irregular. And so when someone adds that dental, like my child, and says catched, we realize, oh, yeah, that's there's this one little word, and there's a few other words like that in the English language that are just irregular verbs, and they don't add the dental sound. And those are one of the few words that work like that. English has a lot of influences from a lot of different languages, like Latin, Greek, but especially French and German. And so all of these different influences is one of the reasons why lang- is one of the reasons why English has so many weird little features to it. But that's how language works and, and going back to this advantage it gives us. We could, for instance, be walking through the forest with our best friend, a pretty normal thing to do. And you see a copperhead snake. We're in a Texas forest, obviously, whatever what other kind of forest would you want to walk through? Well, Uh, maybe Yosemite or something like that. But let's just say we're in Texas for now. You see a copperhead snake about three feet to the right of an oak tree where you're going to say to your friend, look out, there's a copperhead right over there by that oak tree. Now listen to all the words you use. Copperhead, snake, over by that oak tree. You could even say it's about three feet to the right. I mean, the more details you add to it, the more words in certain kinds of sequences and orders representing symbolically certain things indicates to your friend that there's danger. And not just danger, but danger from a particular kind of threat at a particular location. And as a result, we can avoid that danger. 
Now, the baboon's yelp could indicate there's a snake nearby, and if you're lucky, you can climb up a tree or something and maybe escape it. But you don't know precisely where that snake is. You see, no other creature on Earth really has the capacity for symbolic language the way we do so that we can arrange our meanings in certain ways by constructing, by putting words together into these sentence constructions. And so the sentence carries the truth that we human beings bear. And when we share sentences with one another, we are exchanging truth. Or the way I like to put it is we are exchanging meanings. When something has meaning to us, it comes from the truth that we create in relation to our language. And this is how I also define the word discourse. Discourse is an exchange of meanings. And I'll often refer to discourse throughout the class. What do we mean by that? Well, for me and for this class and the way we're going to look at it, is discourse really is about two people, three people, groups of people interacting with one another linguistically. But they're doing so in a way that allows their meanings to surface based on how they are putting their words together. And so that is what I mean by discourse. Now, discourse is vital to human prosperity. One of my favorite lines in the Declaration of Independence is one that says, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands, etc., etc. And here's where my favorite line picks up. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they, that is the people who are dissolving their union, should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, this foundational document here in this free society that is going to be created, the beginning of America, one of the very first realities in the very first sentence of the Declaration of Independence is a statement about the necessity of sharing your opinions. In other words, exchanging meaning, having a discourse about your action. And of course, we know the rest of the Declaration of Independence lists of lots of different rights and ideas and and elements, but also tries to explain to the king what infractions he has committed so that the colonists can feel justified in separating from Great Britain. It's interesting, but it also is how human beings work. We can have a conversation, or we can, if the conversation is not going to solve the problem, we really don't have any other option but to either separate or to resort to violence. And this is what happened in the American Revolution. The conversation was going on, and when that conversation didn't work, there was only one other option. The king could just leave America alone or war. And of course, war was war was the eventual outcome. But you'll also probably note that revolutions are rare, and rare still are revolutions that actually work. And so what what usually happens is we decide as individuals, as people, as groups, to have more conversations, to have more discourse. If you can understand the meanings that drive a person or a group of people, and you can exchange your meanings that drive you or your people that you're with to that other group or to that other person, you have this unique advantage of surviving because you're cooperating rather than fighting. And that cooperation is the most common way we engage with one another with that discourse. Now, that discourse is drawn out in a lot of different ways. How do you bring out your truth? In other words, 
you can have discourse, but sometimes it's not very effective or, or sometimes it doesn't give us the results we want in the end. So how do you make your discourse more effective? Well, sometimes there may be inescapable realities. I mean, if you think about the American Revolution, I'm going to use this example. It's kind of this last time to wrap this up. But if you think about the American Revolution, you had a king on one side that believed in absolute authority from a divine right. And that's a difficult kind of hurdle to overcome, no matter how great your discourse may be. And there's probably little doubt that one of the main writers of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, was a really good communicator as far as his writing is concerned. He knew how to exchange meaning with others. He wasn't always amenable to those he was interacting with, but he still was good at presenting discourse. So sometimes it doesn't always work out. This class, in a lot of ways, is about showing you, giving you the tools to draw out the discourse that is within you. But you're also doing it, and this is where the other side of this class comes in. English, E-N-G-L, represents the language that is the focus of the discipline that you're studying. But the number 1302 is also important. It represents the institutional reality of where you are. Your language and the discourse that can be drawn out, that can be drawn out of you, also now has to interact with this academic discourse. So even though rules are arbitrary, like I said earlier, we need them in order to understand one another. We have certain kind of defined rules, the way commas go in a certain way, the way we use a certain term. One of my favorite games with some of my friends to play, and trust me, this is a really cool game. You should try it sometimes. It's whenever there's a new kind of slang language that comes up in our culture. And what was the former, more formal version of that? Or maybe... Um, less slang version of that or formerly slang version of that. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. So you guys have probably all heard the word thick before. You probably use it all the time. I do every time I look in the mirror. Well, it's a reference to a body type and in particular a kind of, well, we all know what kind of body type it is. And, um, you know, that the term used to be bodacious. <laughs> you think of a old writer like, like John Updike who would use that kind of terminology when he's writing in the 60s because he didn't have a term like thick. Now, bodacious is kind of for, more formal, for sure. It's an actual word. It wasn't made up in a slang circumstance. But you can trace its origins back to wherever it began, and it kind of became the word that it was. And so you could refer to a body type as bodacious. It's the same as thick. All right, so I think you get it. Language has all these different meanings that we're trying to draw out, and we want to do so as effectively as possible. And 1302, and this class that you're in, represents the institutional reality in which we focus our attention on that. But I don't want you to forget about the language part of it as well. We are still trying to draw out your discourse. It's not that you're completely eliminated and you have to only follow the rules. It's that there's a combination of the two. And in fact, the best kinds of papers and essays that you can write, the best kind of discourse you can have with someone, is not one that's so elevated that every word you choose is extremely formal and extremely precise and very clinical and highly logical. The best papers that you can write are those that use that kind of language, but also uses 
an everyday conversational language combines the two into a very approachable kind of expression. And it really also will finally depend as well on your audience. Now, in college, more than likely, your audience is most commonly fellow classmates and professors. And usually when you're writing to your professors, you write in a much more formal tone. We do this all the time. This is how the rules of language work. When you're speaking to your grandmother, you use a particular tone. Of my two grandmothers, one I called grandmother, and she required us to use the most formal and least offensive language possible. And I had another grandmother who we called Mammal, and she was an old country bumpkin, and she loved profanities and vulgarities, and we had a great time with her. Now, both grandmothers had their benefits, right? But Mammal was much more fun, linguistically speaking, because she taught us how to curse. Uh, Grandmother would have washed her mouth out with soap. In fact, I saw her do that on many occasions. Terrible thing to do to a child, but if it's not you and one of your cousins, then you're okay with it. The point is we change our language and we change rules based on the different contexts we're in. That's how discourse works. And one of the first rules you learned in English 1301 and one of the first rules you learn in life in relation to discourse is that you're not always an effective communicator in certain circumstances. And it often, most commonly depends on how well you know your audience. You don't just show up to a group of people and start talking to them as if you're friends. In fact, if I were to do that, if I were to try to hang out with some of you one day, you'd be like, oh, hey, everybody, this is my English professor who apparently wants to hang out with us. I guess we're all really cool now all of a sudden. No, it'd be terrible, right? But let's say, and please, I need friends, so please give me a chance. But let's say I did try to hang out with you after, after this class is over or something, and we're you know you and your friends are hanging out. It would take a while for me to, if that was really an option, it would take a while for me to pick up on your language. But even vice versa, if you wanted to start hanging out with me and my you know some of my professor friends or some of my some of my old adult friends, uh, you'd have to pick up on our language and learn how to interact with us. It doesn't mean you change who you are. In fact, hopefully you don't do that. But you do learn how to communicate within certain kinds of groups, following certain kinds of rules that allow them to understand you, but not just to understand you in a way that makes them feel comfortable about their knowledge and their truth and their meaning, but understand you in a way that allows them to get what you're trying to say. And that is effective discourse. So there are two tools we'll use in this class, and that's where the subtitle of this class comes in. And we'll use these tools to draw out that discourse as effectively as possible within the institution of academic communication, but still drawing on your own personal use of language. And those tools are called rhetoric and composition. Now, rhetoric largely refer, both of those terms, rhetoric and composition, refer to tools that you can use for your discourse. They refer to a particular kind of study of discourse. And they also refer to a, an outside practice. So you can use rhetoric. You can apply it. But you can also identify it and understand it and study it as other people are using it. Composition is just the same way. It is a tool. It is a practice. It is a study, but the two are very different. Rhetoric actually dates back before Aristotle. 
And it became noticeable as a kind of practice, but a tool and even a object for study. When ancient Greeks in particular were concerned about land rights, property rights, and they began to have these arguments, legal arguments in particular, about who owned what, what belonged where, very civic, civically engaged. And instead of fighting one another and killing one another, they had an exchange of meanings. They had a discourse about things. But ancient Greeks also recognized that some people were just better at drawing out that discourse than others. And as a result, they you know, developed these tools and they developed this study called rhetoric. And Aristotle wrote a famous book on rhetoric after centuries, really, of Greeks using it in these legal practices. And in, in it, Aristotle gave us these famous definition of rhetoric. He called it the available means of persuasion. And he also, in that same text and after that definition, gave us these famous persuasive appeals, which you remember from your English 1301 class or from high school as pathos, ethos, and logos the three main ways in which discourse is appealing to others and the three main ways in which you can consider whether or not your discourse is appealing to others. And so what Aristotle and others began to notice is that in certain circumstances, you will change the way you communicate, how you exchange meaning. And so rhetoric became the tool for identifying that and studying that. So there are a lot of different techniques associated with rhetoric, but by and large, the available means of persuasion is one way to think about it. Another way to think about rhetoric, we kind of think historically after Aristotle, I like to use the, the, I like to use the figure of Thomas Aquinas, who wrote this book called Summa Theologica. Now, he wasn't the only one to write something like this. But what Aquinas represents is this medieval notion of rhetoric, whereby everything's traced to God. And so there's this logos that is God, and everything must be connected to it. And so Summa Theologica, the theology of everything, in other words, is the translation there, is how does everything connect to God? And this is a logical practice. And he's using all these little logical formulas linguistically to show you, to explain to you, or whoever is listening or reading, how everything is connected to God. So that was the dominant rhetorical force. With Aristotle and with the early Greeks, it was really about persuasion, drawing people onto your side, getting them to you know, either fall for your tricks or accept your logic or reasoning, whatever it may be. In the Middle Ages, it was really about there's a foundational reality and everything needs to be somehow connected to that. And the reason rhetoric is a little bit different than logic, even though logic's a part of it, is because you can see how in the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages as we sometimes refer to them, if you set this standard, and that's the main logical principle that you have, everything rhetorically surrounds around that in some way or another. And so that's where we get all these kinds of medieval, ancient, and Dark Age kinds of concepts of what is true. You've probably seen the famous scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And if you haven't, you should look it up really quickly and on YouTube or something, in which this mob has brought this woman to a knight and declared her a witch so that they can burn her. And they use these logical principles to make the case that she's a witch, and the knight kind of helps them out. And so the foundational principle here, of course, based on this medieval way of thinking, is that witches are actually real in terms of 
some kind of spiritual creature that needs to be, well, in the case of witches, uh, you should burn them at the stake. And that's what this crowd, this mob wants to do. They want to burn this woman at the stake. Well, this knight finds out that they dressed her up like a witch and everything else, but he walks them through these logical process. What do you do with witches? You burn them, he says. And the crowd agrees. And then he walks through this logical process. Okay, well, if you if witches burn, then they must be made out of what? And so they go through this process, wood. And if wood and if, if witch is made out of wood, then how do you how can you figure that out? Well, wood floats. So what should you do with a witch? Well, you could throw them into the pond and see if they float. Or you can see if they weigh the same as a duck because ducks float on water. And so if a duck and a human weigh the same, that means that human must be a duck because they're made out of wood and therefore a witch because wood burns. Now, it's a ridiculous logical process, but this is how it works, and this is how the Middle Ages kind of worked, is once something was determined to be true, everything kind of had to logically connect to it in some way or another. So there's there's always this kind of rhetorical process of connecting things. So if you think of the early stages of rhetoric as being about persuasion, later stages of rhetoric and the way we studied it and used it was about order putting things into the right place, organizing thoughts and ideas and society around the kind of discourse we were having in relation to what we considered in those in that Western culture to be ultimate truth. In the case of medieval Christendom, that ultimate truth was God or a king or something along those lines. And so everything had to be connected to that higher authority, in other words. Now, the figure I like to associate with kind of a more modern concept of rhetoric is the figure of Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, because everyone's familiar with Shakespeare. Now, Shakespeare didn't write these books on rhetoric or God or anything, but as you know, he wrote all these famous plays. Now, something happened during the Renaissance where there was an emphasis on individuals and humanism. And the idea here is that you as an individual has have this unique involvement in the human race. And as a result, we should value your opinions and your ideas. And we get the enlightenment from these ideas that come up, this notion that everyone is born equal. And of course, there's a long battle associated with that in our culture. But that was one of the things that came out of it. A lot of interesting enlightenment ideas that come out of the Renaissance. But the idea with Shakespeare is that there's a new emphasis on a different way of thinking about rhetoric. And that is the notion of style. So you have persuasion, you have order, and now you have style, where the individual is part of this rhetorical calculation. How do I communicate to someone, but how do I communicate in a way that connects them to me in a unique capacity? And Shakespeare was really good at that. In fact, I think Shakespeare is the greatest. And I certainly think that if you really read Shakespeare carefully, dig into the philosophy and language, you'll see that that is largely what he's doing. He's trying to generate this deep philosophical negotiation of material to bring this discourse to you by entertaining you in a way that is enjoyable, engaging, and inviting, an emphasis on the audience. So in the Middle Ages, where you get this order and this function and you get all these rules, during the Renaissance, Instead of setting down standards, rhetoric really becomes more of a practice than anything else. I mean, there there certainly are rules that are established and ways in which we use discourse in the Renaissance. 
But a major feature there was this breakthrough in which style was emphasized and the individual expression was important. Now, the final way I want you to think about rhetoric is during the 20th century with a philosopher and rhetorician named Kenneth Burke. Now, he's not as famous as Aquinas or Shakespeare or Aristotle, but still, he's, for English professors, he's really famous. A very obscure kind of scholar, though, for most people. And he wrote a lot about rhetoric, and he has some great books on rhetoric. My favorite is The Rhetoric of Religion, and I hope you get a chance to check it out sometime as a college student. Burke's concept of rhetoric was based on what was going on during the 20th century, during his time. He's kind of a contemporary with, but a bit older than Martin Luther King Jr. Now, if you can imagine what's going on in the world during this time, and of course you have World War II, but you also then have what will come later as the Civil Rights Movement. Kenneth Burke may be the father of what we'd call political correctness in a sense. Now, Kenneth Burke wasn't necessarily out there saying we should be politically correct. That term really didn't exist at the time. What he was trying to do is to show that rhetoric is largely about cooperation. How can you use symbols to induce cooperation with other human beings? Now think about the difference here. You have rhetoric as being largely about persuasion or largely about order or largely about individual style. But Burke says, considering our long tradition and the, all of these different features of rhetoric that we've encountered, if you really boil it down to what's going on, we as human beings are trying to use our symbols to cooperate with one another, to find ways to get along. Now, sometimes the cooperation can be forceful. There's no question about that. Burke identified that really, this notion of cooperation, as the main driving force associated with our rhetoric. And in fact, today we do tend to have pretty big debates about how this works. I mean, we just had a former president of the United States banned from one of the most prolific mediums for discourse in our culture, largely because his discourse was so divisive. Now, we can debate whether or not that was a good move by Twitter, kicking Donald Trump off of their platform, but the point is that Human beings largely, especially in the 20th and 21st century, have had pretty negative reactions to rhetoric that doesn't try to induce cooperation, but tries to pit sides against one another. And so we've developed this rhetorical kind of culture of wanting cooperation almost at all costs, especially rather than physical violence. Rhetoric as a tool is something we can use to draw out our discourse, whether we're persuading, whether we're putting things into a particular kind of logical order and understanding something, whether we are expressing our stylistic realities to others and in drawing them into our own kind of existence, or whether or not we are generating cooperation with one another. All four may be part of what's going on. And so this is kind of the historical impact of the concept of rhetoric is that as a tool, we can use it to accomplish these kinds of things. But as a study, we can use it to understand what others are trying to say. Well, look at these different moves they're making. They're trying to be persuasive. They're trying to induce cooperation here. Look at what's going on. Look at how their language is ordered. Their sentences are structured. Their words are put together in this particular way to communicate this very particular thing to us. That is how rhetoric works. Now, the other tool, composition, is a little simpler to explain. 
The term composition in relation to a class like this really dates back to the 19th century. So it doesn't go as far back as rhetoric, but it really represents more than anything a writing class. And so composition and writing classes are usually synonymous. But what does composition mean when it is English 1302 at a large research university? What do we mean when we use the word composition? Well, there's an assumption by this entire institution, me included, that you already know how to write essays and you have a general understanding of grammar. I'm not obsessed with grammar rules or anything, so there are some problems. If you aren't clear and I don't understand what you're saying, you're going to run into some problems. But for the most part, I'm not going to be overly obsessive about that. But I'm going to assume that you have a basic foundation for most of the elements related to writing an essay from the word, to the sentence, to the paragraph, to the entire essay. What composition represents in the modern context is how is your writing aligned with the rhetoric you will learn from your culture that will allow you to draw your discourse. So it's about that paper that you create, this essay that you generate in a class like this, draws on all those rhetorical features and allows your expression to be clear so that your discourse is delivered to others so that you can have that exchange of meaning in whatever context you want to have it, whether it's in a biology department, a marketing department, a social work department, an education department, whatever it may be, you are going to find your place in all these different situations and circumstances and academic studies and even personal circumstances that will require you to find out, okay, what is the rhetorical move here? And how then do I write an essay that rhetorically expresses what I want to about this particular subject, usually in relation to an assignment you've been given? And so that's how composition works. It's really about generating that essay. And an essay really is, if you look at the meaning of the word, it is an attempt. It's an attempt to understand something. Now, the word understanding is really important for me personally. In fact, that's kind of the driving force behind much of what I do. Language is kind of like a religion to me, in a sense. I consider it to be the ultimate power that I've ever encountered, where we get all of our truth as human beings. Now, you don't have to believe that yourself, but if you want to join my cult, then by all means, believe that. But that's not the end of it all, because from that language, we can generate an understanding. Now, I don't know how much we can eventually know, like 100% know something for sure, but we can understand things as best as possible. And we do that by having an exchange of meaning, by having that discourse with one another. And an essay is really about generating understanding through attempts at composing your discourse for someone else, putting it into this written form. So that's what we mean when we're referring to composition, is getting that essay completed. But that essay is going to be drawing on all these different realities, the institutional function, your personal discourse that you're drawing on, and the rhetorical realities of writing papers in an academic setting. Now, both of these tools give you benefits outside of this classroom, too, and even outside of the college. You're going to learn how to apply rhetoric and composition in these more sophisticated kinds of ways so that your writing is kind of at this, well, college-level kind of writing. 
but you're also going to leave the college setting and you're going to have a diploma one day, and I know you will, and you're going to have that diploma in hand, and it's going to indicate to whoever sees or needs that credential that you aren't just a biology major, chemistry major, or nursing major, or engineering major, or education or social worker major. I know there's a lot of really great majors out there, an English major even, if any of you are brave enough to take on that major. And when you have that diploma, whatever your major is, it indicates that you can accomplish some really impressive goals. One is you can pass a lot of different courses and a lot of different subjects. And one of those subjects is a subject of rhetoric and composition. And it is a really difficult subject to master. Now you're thinking, well, English, you know, I know how to speak English. And some, many of you maybe grew up speaking English or many of you probably learned it really formally or whatever. But taking it to the next level, this college level kind of English, where we are applying rhetoric and composition, it's a different game. And your essays are going to represent this ability that you are generating. And we're not looking for perfect prose when we are in this class. What we are looking for are genuine, thoughtful, creative, meaningful attempts at drawing out our discourse so that others can understand us and so that we can generate an understanding of the world around us as well. And so there's those elements there. Now, one last thing about rhetoric and composition that I want to emphasize and that I've already hinted at is the importance of the larger context of who you're writing for. Now, in this class, in English 1301, if you took it at UTA, the sequence of essays you encountered were essentially essays that said, okay, we're going to first learn about discourse and language, and we're going to apply a rhetorical technique, the, the persuasive appeals to our analysis of language, and then we're going to apply that those persuasive appeals to a more challenging specific kind of analysis called a rhetorical analysis where we look at an actual essay. We use rhetoric as kind of a study, right? And we use composition as a study and we look at what someone has written in an essay and we evaluate it. And then our final, the final essay in English 1301 was the synthesis essay in which you take all of those tools a step further, language, argument, analysis, and you combine several outside sources and you generate your own opinion in relation to those sources, drawing on their information to demonstrate your understanding and create a discourse through the essay that you write in relation to whatever topic it is that you chose for your final essay in that sequence. Very important skills and very difficult skills to master for sure. In English 1302, the writing sequence is a little bit different. Your main goal for this class is to write this large research project. In fact, the final paper in this class, the research position paper, the RPP, is the culmination of everything in this class. And everything you write from your first essay up until that essay really is about writing that final essay. In fact, anything you write in your early essays and your early writing projects, you can use in your final paper, even word for word. It's not considered self-plagiarism in this case because this is all about building up to that final project. Now, you are going to have separate writing assignments that you'll have to accomplish that will be graded. And by the way, just a reminder, 
If you don't accomplish one of those, you automatically fail the class. That is a department-wide policy that I have to follow. But it's also an important one. Make sure you complete all of the major writing assignments for this class, or you cannot pass. But once you're doing all of that, that final paper is your goal. It is going to be an argument you make, and it is going to be about whatever topic you choose. Now, here is the catch. You will have to choose a topic to research this semester, which will culminate in a final position you take on the topic. So that topic also has to be a controversial issue. Now, an issue is just a question that arises within a particular kind of discipline or topic or matter or circumstance. And we use that term technically issue to refer to the very question that you're trying to answer. Your first essay in this class is a proposal paper. And you're going to propose a topic that you will research this semester. And you will try to communicate to the reader, which will be your classmates and me for this first paper, just how arguable and significant this topic is and what kind of issue you could eventually engage with to generate that final research position paper. Now, there will be a lot to consider there, but it is important that you find a topic that is important to you and meaningful to you because that first issue proposal paper that you will write will set the stage for everything else you'll do this semester. You cannot change your topic once you have written your issue proposal paper about that topic, unless you're willing to rewrite your issue proposal paper and get a new grade on your new paper. So I recommend you choose a topic to begin with to write this issue proposal paper over something that you like and care about. It doesn't have to be a major global matter like solving climate change. It could be big like that, but it doesn't have to be. For instance, I'm going to write this sequence of papers along with you. And I actually am going to write for a very particular audience, white evangelical Christians. And the reason I'm writing to that particular audience is because I have a lot of background with that community. I'm not necessarily a evangelical Christian myself, but I do have this connection with that community, and I know a lot about it. My dissertation was on Bible translation. I have a lot of background with the society, biblical literature, and theology. I'm really interested in that kind of stuff. And regardless of what I actually believe, I'm still highly involved in that community. And so it's important to me to communicate with them and to have a discourse with that community. And I think I'm probably going to write about a topic in relation to the culture wars that they refer to often probably focusing on one single topic like abortion because I belong to a lot of organizations that support reproductive rights and so I consider it to be a very important topic but I know that this community is really antagonistic toward my position on the matter and so how am I going to draw the two together well the issue proposal is all about saying to the reader I am going to explore this this semester this is how I'm going to explore it. this is what makes it such an arguable topic. This is what makes the issue, these potential questions that can come up that I will answer so potent or powerful. There's another term we use called exigency, and that refers to what is it that creates the need to generate issues so that we have a discourse about a particular topic. What is the exigence, for instance, of this particular issue that I'm going to be bringing up? 
Well, I think you can look at it historically, you can look at it culturally, you can look at it theologically. There's a lot of different ways you can look at it. So the issue proposal is about drawing, getting all this kind of stuff out on the table and saying this is what makes it such a great topic and this is how I'm going to look at it and research it. You're not arguing your position in this issue proposal paper, but instead you are presenting to the reader a sense that this is a topic worth arguing. Now the next writing project after the issue proposal is an annotated bibliography. It's not technically an essay, so we refer to it, we don't refer to it as the second essay in this class, but it is the second major writing project in this class. And it can be grueling if you don't do it correctly. An annotated bibliography is a list of sources. In this case, you'll have to have 10 sources, and it's just a summary and analysis of each one of those sources with a couple of paragraphs associated with each one. Usually these annotated bibliographies run anywhere from seven to 10 pages, sometimes even more, depending on how much you draw from it. Now remember, anything you write and communicate in these papers, even the annotated bibliography, you can use later in your research position paper. And sometimes when I do these sequence, sometimes I'll borrow word for word features from my annotated bibliography or my issue proposal. Now usually I only get a sentence or two from each. Sometimes I get more depending on how I arrange my material. But the point is you're going to be involved in the sequence of building up to this research position paper and you're going to get a lot of help along the way. If you do this correctly, you're going to learn that following this sequence helps you generate the best possible discourse that you can have in a final essay. And the next paper you'll write after the annotated bibliography is called the mapping the issue paper. And in this paper, what you're doing is you're mapping out the history, the background, and the different positions associated with the issue, the topic you've chosen. And so it's a very neutral paper. You're not arguing a position. You're trying to make a case that your issue or your topic is arguable and worth a semester of research. You're not doing that. In this paper, in the mapping the issue paper, you're actually saying, okay, I'm going to be totally neutral. And I'm going to just give you the facts about this issue. What's going on here? You know, this is where it all started. And this is what's going on now. This is position one. This is position two. This is position three. And this is how they're all interconnected. And that's what that third or that really second essay is going to be about third major writing project. And then finally, you will write your research position paper. Once you've done all the research, once you've made your proposal, once you have mapped out your issue completely, and you have this full, deep understanding, then you can start drawing out your own discourse on the topic and make your argument clear. Argumentation is a specific kind of study that really is linked to rhetoric. In fact, the two may be one in the same kind of discipline in a lot of ways, especially when you're thinking of Western civilization and Western history. Now, argumentation kind of dates back to Aristotle, this available means of persuasion, but it also relates to the 21st century notion from Kenneth Burke, inducing cooperation. Argumentation, pure and simple, could be called reason giving, but there are several different definitions of the word argumentation or the study of argumentation. I'm not going to get into all that. Your textbook defines what an argument is in some ways and shows you different perspectives on that. But I'm going to boil it down to this. And this isn't the only answer to what an argument is, but it is a good way to start and especially to understand it. For this class, and the way I'm going to look at it, is an argument is a claim plus reasons. Now what that means is a claim is just a statement that can be accepted or rejected. Okay, so think of a sentence, kind of that going back to symbolic language. But that sentence 
has come from a very particular rhetorical tradition. And more than likely, when you do make a claim, let's say you made a claim like cats are evil. Now, you would be correct. They are. And they should be eliminated because they are disgusting creatures, far inferior to dogs, especially as pets. However, let's say you made that statement. Now, if everyone agreed with you and no one cared really about that reality, then you don't really have an argument because no one's going to request any information. But let's say, and I'm betting this is probably the case with many of you, you are a cat person. You have a pet cat. You actually like cats. You do not think cats are evil. Then you may ask that person who makes the claim cats are evil, why? How do you know that? Prove it. Or that's interesting. Something to indicate that you want more. That's where that plus comes in. That plus indicates someone else, an individual, a group, an organization, whatever it may be, has requested more information about your claim. In fact, isn't willing to accept your claim necessarily. And so what they are requesting is some kind of reasoning that allows them to understand how you've come to that conclusion. In other words, what they want you to do is provide a discourse, an exchange of meanings, sentence after sentence, that allows them to understand why you got to that point where you were saying cats are evil and you became enlightened and true and good. No, I'm kidding. But that's how I'm going to define an argument, a claim plus a reason. So what that means is you're going to have a conclusion you come to for your research position paper. And it's going to start back when you identify what topic you want to choose. It's going to build and build and build and transform until you finally get to your the end of the semester when you're writing your research position paper and you have that claim you want to make. But your essay, the composition, is going to come from how you've rhetorically considered all of the features associated with that claim and all of the different and all of the different people and groups and individuals who want to know more about it, and you've decided what is the best course of action for delivering your discourse to others in relation to that claim. And so rhetoric and composition are going to be these tools that get you to that place where you are not only making your claim, but defending it with reasons because there's this other element requesting information. This brings me to a really important feature of rhetoric that we haven't talked about yet. But it's ever-present, really, in any circumstance you find yourself in as a writer or a communicator. And that is what we call the rhetorical situation. The rhetorical situation is simply a trilateral function between the audience that will be hearing your message, you as a writer, an individual, and whatever subject matter, whatever topic or issue you're writing about. And whenever you can make a connection between you and the audience... You're thinking rhetorically, how do you do that? But you're also thinking about, okay, well, how can I compose my sentences in a way that works rhetorically with this audience? But you also want to connect your audience with the subject matter. How do you do that? Think back earlier to that person who doesn't know what a cat is and called cats dogs and dogs cat. You can't just jump in rhetorically with an attitude of, I'm right, you're wrong, whatever your stupid parents taught you was dumb. You can't do that. Now, you maybe could, but it's probably not going to be very effective. It's not going to induce cooperation. It's not going to be persuasive. It's not going to give any order to the reality that they're, this person is facing. But if you kind of walk through them and say, you know, it's really interesting. 
that you use cat, the word cat for dog. How did you get there? And then maybe identifying, well, that's the cool way to get there. This is how most people in our culture actually get to a different place with those words. And I would like to invite you to start using the word the way we do so that we can understand one another better. Now, that's a little bit more inviting, maybe even more persuasive than just clobbering someone over the head with, you're wrong, here's the exact rule. Because as we have already indicated, language often puts us in a position where we don't know everything exactly perfectly. And our best bet is to try to understand things and to try to find some common ground so we all can understand one another as best as possible in our exchange of meaning, in our discourse. So we're always, in every assignment we write, we're going to be considering the rhetorical situation. In fact, I've asked you to read the rhetorical situation of every major assignment in the English 1302 writing sequence. The rhetorical situation for your issue proposal paper, the rhetorical situation for your mapping the issue paper, and your rhetorical situation for your research position paper. All the annotated bibliography doesn't have a rhetorical situation because it's not technically an essay that you're writing. So... Looking at those rhetorical situations will give you a sense of the main goals that you're trying to accomplish, who who your audience is, what your role is as a writer, and how you're going to have to negotiate the subject matter in relation to one of those. If your audience doesn't quite get your subject matter, or you don't quite understand your subject matter, and it's clear in the actual essay that those problems are occurring, those are what we call in rhetorical studies constraints. They're gaps in communication. Think of a line that you would draw to connect you and the audience. And if you're not making a good connection, there's going to be a gap in the line. And that gap in communication is a constraint. There's something in the way. There's something constraining your relationship with that audience. And so you're going to have to figure out how to connect with that audience. You know, for instance, I I mentioned white evangelical Christians. I don't know exactly who I'd be writing for. In the end, maybe Christianity Today or maybe a particular church or a pastor or something along those lines. I don't know yet. But whoever it will be, I can't just come into that conversation declaring myself the ultimate authority on theology or biblical interpretation or anything like that because I'm not. And in fact, they're going to probably have some antagonism toward me because I don't necessarily believe what they believe. I just am part of their ethnic background associated with their belief structure. And so I have to tiptoe rhetorically around a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have to. And I also don't want to insult a religion because that automatically cuts off conversation. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, prove God exists. Well, if I do that and that's the big debate we get into, I can't even have the conversation over the topic I want to. And so considering your audience, but also considering your subject and considering who you are as a writer and all these different things you have to communicate, that's the rhetorical situation. And it is the foundational part of every argument, of every paper you're ever going to write, not just in this class, but any class. And that's always going to be the case. If you think back to when I was referring to grandmothers, you can apply that to almost any circumstance. You're one day going to be a graduate. You're going to be out in the professional settings And you're going to have bosses who are going to request things of you. And you're going to have to learn how to communicate with that boss. And every boss is going to be different. Some are cool, some are not. Some are Michael Scott kind of bosses. Some are Robert California kind of bosses. You will have to, in almost every circumstance in life, constantly think about that rhetorical situation and how you're going to interact with one another. One good example I like to use that people often 
dislike, but I actually think it's a good one. Politicians will sometimes go to different places around the country and they will talk to different communities of people and they'll sometimes change their voice, the way they say things. And a lot of people think, well, that's very disingenuous. Why can't you just be who you are? Well, that's not what we do as human beings. When I interact with a particular group of people, I don't change who I am, but I do change the way I talk with them out of respect for them. And I think that's a pretty good rule. You know, H.W. Fowler, who is this famous writer on grammar and usage in the English language, says about pronunciation, whenever you think about how should I pronounce a word, he says that the only right thing to do with pronunciation is to copy your neighbor. He says that's the only virtue that we have in relation to pronunciation. The only time we have a problem with pronunciation is when someone's so far outside the boundaries that, you know, it's a problem. Think of another word, like the word N-A-K-E-D. Now, I was born and raised in East Texas, so the way I usually say that word is like this, naked. But that's not how most people say that word. I get made fun of by my professor friends all the time for pronouncing that word that way, but I think it's cute. They, however, would say it, as most people probably do, outside of East Texas bumpkins, is naked. And that's fine. And that's the way it likely is said around most people. But in a way, the rhetorical situation is a reminder of everything I've said already. That you have language, you have this institutional reality where our language requires certain kinds of discourse conventions, rules that we have to follow in academic discourse. But we also have the tools of rhetoric and composition to kind of negotiate ourselves within that discourse so that we can write essays that are reflective of our own perspective, our own style, but also follow rules so that others within our rhetorical situation can understand us and accept what we have to say. And from here, all of our essays, everything we will write will be negotiated around this rhetorical situation in one way or another and bring us back to those tools of rhetoric and composition. Okay, so one last thing I want us to consider, if you think about argumentation, an argument is claim plus reasons. You think of rhetoric and composition as the tools that draw out our discourse. If we're putting all these things together, the last thing I want us to think about is how tricky rhetoric can be. And so I want to put it into some linguistic context, because that's where we started with language. We're ending our lecture today with the matter of rhetorical situation. Now, let's say I'm at home and I hear my wife from across the house say something like, it's cold in here. Well, what does she want when she says that? Why is she saying that? What do you think? If you are saying that she is commenting on the nature of our relationship, you'd be incorrect. Our relationship is not cold. In fact, it is neither hot nor cold (laughs) because we've been married for 20 years. What it is instead is a relationship based on how well we know one another. When she says, it's cold in here and I am in a different room of the house, but I hear her, So she's obviously saying it loud enough for me to hear, but she's also saying it with an intonation that tells me something. Now, I'm also, because I've been married 20 years, very scared of my wife. And I know that if I don't accomplish whatever goal she has in mind, she will harm me. So I immediately get up from wherever I'm sitting, probably in front of a 
television or screen of some sort with a bowl of Cheetos or Cheez-Its, depending on what I'm in the mood for. And more than likely, I'm watching some kind of sci-fi show like Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek or something. And I immediately get up and I go to the thermostat and I turn it down, or I guess the temperature up, I guess I should say, so that it's no longer cold in here. Now, I could say to my wife, thank you for stating that fact in a declarative sentence. You remember your types of sentence, right? Interrogative, ask a question. Declarative sentences state a fact. So it's cold in here is declarative. But imperative sentences give a command. In some magical way, my wife is able to transform that declarative sentence into an imperative sentence, into a, from a fact to a command, just by the way she says it. Now, how is she able to do that? What do you think about this? It's, it's pretty fascinating because there is this element of fear that's associated with that. I don't want to be harmed by my wife. There's also this matter of being married for 20 years, so we understand one another's language really well. And there's also this matter of knowing intonations. If she were to say, it's cold in here, as opposed to, it's cold in here, well, that would have said something different to me. And I'm not quite sure what that would mean, because I don't think I've ever heard it that way before. Or maybe I wasn't listening. Don't tell her I said that. Okay, so the point here is that based on our relationship, our long relationship with one another, the way we understand each other's roles in our relationship, and the way we kind of listen to one another and how things are said, all these elements coming together, also considering where I am in the house, my physical location, I mean, there's all these features associated here. And taking all that into consideration, I know that my wife is not stating a fact, but with her declarative sentence, she is giving me a command. Now, language magically works like that. And it does so because we understand certain cues based on those rhetorical situations. Now, you also, I hope, will see that it actually takes a lot of work to understand these features. When you first start dating someone, you don't always know what they mean when they say something like it's cold in here. And, you know, I certainly didn't know that the first year I was married, or the fifth year, or the 10th year, or the 19th year, but the 20th year, I've got it down just right. And so, what I want you to understand is that language works like this, and you're going to have to constantly consider your audience and your relationship with your audience. And I'm not saying you're going to have to marry this paper or this topic or the eventual audience members that you're going to be writing to. In fact, you may not want to marry them, but you will have to do as much as you can to understand that audience so that you can draw everything together for them. And that's what rhetoric and composition really is about. Having a claim a goal, something to accomplish, and having it accomplished because everyone who's involved in the communication finds a way to cooperate within it, whether they're persuaded, whether they see the order and the power of the logic, whether they see the personal connection, or whether they just see how the language is meaningful to them and it induces that cooperation. Whatever it may be, that's how rhetoric and composition will work. Now, discovering this deep meaning within language is what linguists call illocutionary force. So let me break that down briefly. Locution is what you hear someone say at face value, but illocution is the purpose and meaning buried within what they say in relation to how they say it based on the circumstance in which they say it. And so that's that purpose that we're looking for in communication. So if you think of your discourse, and on the sentences of meaning, truth that you're communicating. You think of this final kind of element, this illocutionary force, 
How are you able to get your purpose across to someone in a way where they don't even think twice about it because they know exactly what you're saying based on how you communicate it with them in the particular circumstance in which you're communicating? And that is the power of rhetoric and composition. And that is what we will focus on in this class. How can your eventual argument that you will make, the claim plus your reasons in your research position paper, how does it start with the issue proposal in the very first day all the way to the last day of class in which you'll finally finish that research position paper and turn it in and make a case for whatever position you're going to take on your issue. So the next step is to choose your topic. Find something that's meaningful for you, something that you really like. It, like I said, it doesn't have to be something very super serious. It doesn't have to be deeply personal. It could be something you just enjoy. If you like having arguments with friends in subreddits or on Signal or whatever it is you kids talk about these days, drugs or whatever, write about that. That's something you care about. Don't choose something that you think is a major big deal, but you're not really passionate about or engaged with or you don't have any connection with. That may pose a problem for you later down the road. Another thing to consider is you only have one semester to write this paper, and your final paper is, you know, going to be around 10 pages or so. So you don't have it in a book to write. So you also want to choose a topic that you feel like you can really communicate about. So let's say you wanted to write about something like legalizing marijuana or something along those lines. Well, you're very cool for writing about that. But that is a topic that has been written about and talked about for a very long time. And so finding your own place within that and your own con- within your own rhetorical context might be a little bit more challenging than you think. In fact, you may eventually end up with a topic like that just regurgitating things other people have said and you don't have your own personal individual argument. But you could also make this argument for a particular audience. In fact, you that's kind of maybe the nuance you have. I want to convince this particular group of people about legalizing marijuana. You know, maybe it's your parents or friends within your parents' generation or maybe friends you have that you want to stop being total squares, you know. Whatever it may be, I'm joking about that, by the way, but Whatever it may be, you need to find a topic that works for you. Maybe you want to talk about the new Dune movie that's coming out. Is it going to be good or not? There's a lot of different kinds of claims you can make and a lot of different arguments, reasons that you can give to support it. A claim doesn't just have to be, here's the solution to a problem. A claim could be something as simple as, let me evaluate this, place a judgment on it. Or, I think we need to define this term in a different way. Or here's something that actually is true, and I want to convince you that it is. Uh, Claim a fact or something. There are a lot of different kinds of claims, and your textbook kind of references these in chapter one of everything's an argument, the different types of arguments you can have, the different types of claims you can make. And it also gives you different kinds of argumentative structures to look at, like Rogerian type of structure. And we're going to look at all these and examine these throughout the semester. But what I want you to see now is that The idea of an argument is not just as simple as saying, here's my main claim, here are my reasons. It will require you to find your place within the context of that argument. And so this brings me to that rhetorical situation one last time in relation to your textbook, They Say, I Say. The introduction to that textbook and chapter one identify one of the most important features to begin with. And that's where you really should start before you engage with your issue proposal paper. 
this notion of entering a conversation. If you think back to language, discourse, whatever it may be, it's sometimes not worthwhile to engage in a discourse, especially if you're not really concerned with it. Let's say someone has made a claim and you don't really care much about what their reasons are. Well, then that's not an argument that you want to have. It's not a discourse you want to engage with. But more than likely, you're already involved in several conversations about several different things. What's the best way to apply eyeliner? Who's the best YouTuber out there? What is the funniest show on television? How do we solve the climate crisis? Are we ever going to get universal health care? Should the death penalty be eliminated? I mean, there are a lot of big issues. There are a lot of more local issues. And you should find the place that works for you. And then engage with that conversation. Find out what everyone is saying about it. Engage with as many people involved in that conversation as possible. And that's where you will start to find the rhetorical power to eventually compose the essay that you want to make your case for your final conclusion that you'll come to on your controversial topic. And so it all will begin with everything we've talked about and now this very first assignment in English 1302, the issue proposal paper. So let's examine that assignment now. And really briefly before we actually examine that assignment, let me just say the password for your quiz today is the word cat, C-A-T, cat. So the best way for us to approach an assignment like the issue proposal paper is for us to just make sure, and the reason I'm going to do this is because I would do this in my class, is I want to read it al the assignment aloud and comment on the different features associated with the assignment. Now you're obviously going to have questions that will come up and you should certainly ask them, but I am going to walk through this assignment and give some commentary. I'm going to do all of this pretty briefly, but I'm going to do so so that you can kind of follow along the assignment and understand it as best as you possibly can. So all of your major writing assignments will be in your Everything's an Argument textbook, and they're all at the beginning of the textbook. So the essay sequence for English 1301 comes first, and then starting on page L. VI or 56, if you're Roman numeral literate, is where English 1302 assignments start. So that's where we will be as far as assignments are concerned. So always turn to the beginning of your textbook to find the assignments. Now, the first paper in English 1302 is called the Issue Proposal Paper, and I've already mentioned this many times. But for this paper, you will propose a research project that will span the entire semester. Your audience will be your classmates and me. Any academic or public policy research project begins by identifying an issue, which is simply an unsettled question that matters to a community. In the proposal stage, a writer takes stock of her or his current knowledge of and position on the issue and develops a research plan. A well-constructed issue proposal serves as a blueprint for the project and helps define a feasible scope for the project. A couple of things I want to point out in this rhetorical situation. First of all, you as the writer are going to be focusing on a subject matter, your research plan. Notice it's not your position on the issue. The point of the issue proposal is to outline this research plan. You're defending the process of researching your topic or your issue throughout a semester. And so that's what this proposal is all about. 
And when I look at your proposals, I'm going to be concerned with that. Now, it's rare that I ever say, well, this isn't going to eventually be a very good paper to write about, or this isn't a good topic. I rarely ever run into that problem. In fact, I don't think I really have in the last few years. Now, as you probably know, your textbook is, as you probably know, all of the assignments in your textbook are divided up into several major sections. There's the first section, the rhetorical situation. The next section then is the invention section. Now the word invention is borrowed from ancient Roman and Greek rhetorical studies, and it refers to the systematic search for ideas that can be shaped into an effective composition. So every section will have this invention section, and by systematic search, it's largely referring to prompts or questions that you pose to yourself so that you can generate the material for the essay. So Typically, in any proposal that you write, any issue proposal that you write, to start a research project. Sometimes a proposal can end a research project, but that's for another class and another time. But to start a research project with a proposal, there's certain things you want to accomplish, at least while you're inventing material for this essay. So the first thing you want to do is to make sure the issue you've selected is arguable. So now I'm on page LVII. I'm at number one under invention. Apply the 12 12 steps of an arguable issue, which is available in the reading section. If you cannot answer yes to all 12 questions, change or modify your issue until you can. Please note that all the major assignments in this course build on one another. So once you select an issue, you may not change it. So I've mentioned this before, but this is a very important feature. I'd say the most important thing you can do this semester for this class is to think carefully about what issue you're going to write about. Make sure it's something that you will enjoy, that you will like doing at least, that maybe can draw on some of the other classes you are working with. Now, you can't turn in the same essay that's against the rules. It's a departmental policy that we follow. But there are ways in which you can borrow some of the big questions or issues you run into in other classes and write about them in this class. Now, number two under invention says it's always a good idea to start a research project by taking inventory of your knowledge of the topic. Draft answers to the following questions. What do you know about the topic already? Try to be as methodical and comprehensive as possible in detailing your current knowledge. This is really important because in this case, I'm going to look for you answer this question specifically. So in this essay, make sure you have a section where you are identifying what you already know, and it could be a lot, but it might not be that much at all. And so communicate all of these things. If you know a lot, talk about that. I do know a lot about this. Here's here's a lot of my background. There's things that I can't even include because there's so much I know about it, but maybe you know nothing and kind of talk about that lack of knowledge. It's not a matter of you just saying no, I don't know this or understand this, you should also be able to say, or you should also be able to articulate in that moment, I don't know this, I don't understand this, and this is maybe why. Maybe I haven't given enough time or effort, or maybe it's something new that's come up, it's exciting, and this is why I'm kind of researching it. I don't know what it may be. You also want to identify how you acquired your knowledge of the topic. So I'm continuing to read there. Rack your memory to recall the specific sources of your current knowledge and think about how your knowledge of the topic has evolved over time. 
This is another place where if you don't know a whole lot about the topic, you can at least talk about where you started and where you are now. And even if you're the same, even if you haven't changed your position or haven't really changed much of your thoughts about it, explain why you haven't. Maybe there's a religious belief associated with that. Maybe there's a personal conviction. Maybe you're the type of person who you can explain pretty clearly. You just don't spend a lot of time doing the research and now you're finally going to do that. I don't know what it may be, but the more detailed description you can always get into with answering some of these invention questions, the better off you are. Now, number three under invention says the most important goals of an issue proposal are to narrow the general topic to a specific issue and to construct a specific plan for research. So draft answers to these following questions in relation to that plan you're constructing. So here's the first question. What are the main questions you want to answer in your final project? Be specific. Notice the exclamation mark. Obviously, your research questions may change and evolve as you learn more about your issue, but specific research questions will give you a place to start. This is a really unique opportunity for you to be creative and thoughtful and engage with this topic. List for me as a reader the questions that have come up. And then the next question asks, how would you answer these questions right now? Now, obviously, you're not going to have all this research behind you, more than likely. But just right now, based on your own personal knowledge and where you're coming from, how would you answer them? So think about that question for me. If I think of like this topic I'm, I'm going to be researching, the broad general topic is the topic of abortion, for instance. But that's not really the focus. My, my real issue is abortion in relation to this very particular community of white evangelical Christians. But it probably should be narrowed down even further. And in particular, you know, what kinds of questions do I have there? Well, one question could be as huge and fundamental as, is my personal position on this topic as convincing as I really think it is? Is their position as bad as I really think it is? How can I adequately still man and and understand their position if I'm so opposed to it? I mean, I can keep going on and on, but the idea here is there's a lot of questions. How would I answer them? Well, the more narrow and specific I can get with some of these, the better off I'm going to be. The final question you ask yourself under number three is, where will you go to learn more about the issue and to find answers to your research questions? Let's again, be as specific as possible. The idea here is then you will then not only list questions, list potential answers, but then say, okay, well, I don't know everything, so here's where I'm going to go to find some of these answers. There's this book, this essay this research project, or maybe just the library in general. Now, the better answers to the this, to this last question under number three are those that are really thoughtful and said, okay, I'm not just going to stop. I'm not just going to say the library or a place where research is a, or a, or the internet or Google or anything like that. Those are fine places. And you might even could say something like, I'm going to start here like with this Wikipedia entry. But then I'm going to trace all these sources out. I'm going to actually find the, the primary sources listed here and see if Wikipedia got it right. But my main concern is to kind of trace out this topic through some of these sources. That's fine if that's what's going on. So you should communicate that. Under number four, it says, you should also be thinking about potential audiences for your final project. Draft answers to the following questions. What audiences would be interested in your ideas on the issue? 
what types of scholars, stakeholders, decision makers, and pundits are interested in slash affected by the issue. What sorts of people are likely to be your opponents, your allies? So once again, we're back to that rhetorical situation, thinking about who you will be writing to. This is a really important question for me because I don't exactly know that yet. And it's okay if you don't. One thing I would recommend for anyone in this situation, obviously you don't know your audiences necessarily yet, but to imagine a lot of different positions. For instance, also imagining imagining someone disagreeing with you. I mean, we do this all the time. You're about to go have an argument with your significant other, and so you kind of imagine what the argument's going to be about, what you're going to say to them. It never really pans out the way you want, but the point is coming in without any preparation, without any thought, can be kind of tricky. Number five under invention says the previous four invention steps will help you generate the logos appeals of your issue proposal. The logical proofs that will help you convince your classmates and me that you have selected an issue that will sustain a semester's worth of research and writing. But you will also make ethos appeal to your classmates and me to convince us that you are a person of good character, good sense, and goodwill. To make effective ethos appeals, make sure you are knowledgeable about the issue. So all those questions that were asked, it's not a matter of saying, giving a single answer explaining your answers a little bit further. Help us understand how deeply involved you are, how your understanding of the topic doesn't just stop at a basic knowledge, but you're willing to at least explore further and indicate that to the reader if you haven't already done that exploration. Notice it says, if you do not yet know enough about your issue to provide specific answers to those questions, you will need to conduct some preliminary research to find the information you need. So it actually is the case that you may have to do a little bit of research at the beginning here. Now, you're not required to have all these outside sources and to really document everything precisely, but it could be useful. And in fact, it should be done at least a little bit of preliminary research to get a grasp on what it is you really want to delve into for this topic. Just choosing a topic because you want to not really having some foundational understandings of how this topic exists immediately could be a problem for you in the long run. But another way to make effective ethos appeals, as it says under number five, is to show regard for your readers. Try to come across as approachable and thoughtful, not arrogant or insensitive. And we've talked a little bit about that already. Also, Make sure that you are careful and meticulous in your writing, not sloppy or disorganized. Once again, we talked about this, this fusion of both the formal and the informal into your single composition. Number six under invention says that finally you will make pathos appeals to your classmates and me to sway our emotions, connect with our values, and stir our imaginations. To make effective pathos appeals, make sure you draw on the lessons of chapter nine and they say, I say, to mix standard written English with Everyday speak. So again, draws on that formal and informal coming together. There's no need to stick to stucky academic prose in this paper, but you also don't want to be so informal that your classmates and I can't understand you. Evoke emotions, sympathy, outrage, anger, delight, all horror, and so on in your classmates and me that make your paper more moving. Evoke sensations. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, 
in your classmates and me that make your writing vivid and help us to experience things imaginatively. And also appeal to values, freedom, justice, tolerance, fairness, equality, and so on that your classmates and I share. I mean, this draws on that rhetorical situation again. You don't have to have the exact same sense of justice as your audience, but you both have some sense of justice, and you can draw on that and appeal to that emotional reality. We all want justice, and we all perceive of it likely in different ways, but we all want it. We all think it's important in certain circumstances, I imagine. And so drawing on that emotion rather than the direct, immediate, practical application of justice, and you're communicating with the pathos of your audience. Now, aside from the rhetorical situation and invention, every assignment will also have a section called arrangement. This is another ancient feature of rhetoric and composition. How do you put things in a particular order? In fact, in rhetorical studies, as your textbook says there on page LIX, in rhetorical studies, arrangement refers to the selection of content generated during the invention stage and the organization of that content into an effective composition. So to begin your paper, follow the advice offered in chapter one of They Say, I Say, to give your writing the most important thing of all, namely a point. A writer needs to indicate clearly not only what his or her thesis is, but also what larger conversation that thesis is responding to. In this case, the conversation you're responding to is the one surrounding the issue you've selected. Indicate at the beginning of your paper that you're writing in response to that conversation. Then state a thesis that previews what you'll be discussing in your proposal. Now remember, what you'll be discussing in your proposal is what was identified in the invention section. So you're going to have to put into a single kind of thesis statement what it is that you're going to be delivering to the reader that has been invented in these last few sections here. Now that's quite a task, but that is your thesis statement. Also mind the lesson of chapter 7 and They Say, I Say. Regardless of how interesting a topic may be to you as a writer, readers always need to know what is at stake in a text and why they should care. Rather than assume that audiences will know why their claims matter, all writers need to answer the so what and who cares questions up front. Don't assume that your classmates and I will understand why your issue matters. Make us understand by explaining why your issue is important and why it matters to a community. Feel free to use the templates in Chapter 7 of They Say, I Say to accomplish this goal. After you've completed these introductory moves, the arrangement of your analysis is up to you. You should include material from each step of the invention stage, but your selection and organization of that material should follow your own judgment as to what will prove most effective with your classmates and me. As a, your grader, I am looking for everything from that invention section to be addressed in your actual essay. But where it's addressed, at what point in the essay, is really up to you. You can follow the order that is provided for you in your textbook, but more than likely that might not work out for you. just depends on your circumstance and what you're trying to accomplish with your audience. Another section you'll see in every assignment is a section on style. In rhetorical studies, style refers to the appropriate language for the occasion, subject matter, and audience. One purpose of English 1302 
is to give you practice writing in a variety of styles. For this paper, your style should be clear but informal. As mentioned earlier, you should follow the advice in Chapter 9 of They Say, I Say and mix standard written English with everyday speak. This paper will allow your classmates and me to get to know you better, so write in a style that is your own. Readers appreciate coherent, unified paragraphs, even when reading an informal piece of writing. Your paragraph should include a topic sentence that clearly states the main idea of the paragraph and supporting sentences that cluster around the main idea without detours. Proofread carefully. Avoid errors in grammar, spelling, punctuation, and mechanics, and visit the Purdue OWL website for questions you have regarding style. Okay, so by an informal style here, we're really referring to, like it says, your own voice. And depending on your topic and how you're presenting the material and how you're understanding your rhetorical situation, that will determine what you eventually include and how you eventually piece things together stylistically. Now, the reason we don't spend a lot of time on this section is because it is the most difficult. Teaching style is very complicated, and we have entire classes devoted to that. So the basic idea is to just think about the language you use and think about those different people engaged with that language. Now, you're writing to your classmates and to me, so you kind of have a little bit of a sense of my personality, but you also should consider this informal. I mean, I don't care if you need to drop an F-bomb in this paper, if that works. You see, the thing is, sometimes F-bombs work rhetorically in certain circumstances. And sometimes they don't. When you are hanging out with your best friends, you probably use a lot of profanities, vulgarities, act like a bunch of goons when you're around them. I mean, I don't. When my friends are very proper and good and honorable. But, you know, not everyone can be as noble as I am. And I'm just kidding. We all probably have a friend that kind of has her own way of presenting themselves. We do that ourselves. And think about style in that sense, especially an informal style is more closely related to you. So remember at the beginning of this lecture when I was talking about discourse and your own personal discourse coming into an academic setting. Well, in this paper, your own personal discourse that you're drawing on is going to be more emphasized. It's going to be highlighted more clearly through the language you use in this paper than it will in other papers you'll eventually write. Now, one last thing I want to say before we go. And that goes, brings us back to the invention section where you are considering potential audiences. Your final research paper, the research position paper, will actually require you as part of the rhetorical situation to choose a specific audience. So this is something I think you should be thinking about early on. Not just what topic you're going to choose, but who specifically is going to receive this message. And when I say that, I mean an actual address, someone or some group that can physically or electronically receive your paper if you decided to send it to them. You can't just say the American people or college students or professors or parents. Those are too vague. It has to be someone or something or some group or some organization that can potentially, they don't have to actually, but could potentially receive your paper and read it and respond to it. So something to keep in mind as you're moving forward. Okay, so you have this assignment. You have all this material related to this class. You have a sense of what you're going to be doing this semester. So now your goal is to decide on your topic, identify an issue in within that topic, start thinking about the audiences, and then 
write this issue proposal paper in relation to that topic, giving me and your classmates a sense of the semester of research and writing that you will do in this class.